All right, loyal Hurley Burleyites, thank you for being here. And thank you, too, for all of your public and private comments on last week's interview with Seamus O'Regan Jr. Credit to him. I know how busy Minister O'Regan is, and it was a hell of a thing for him to take all that time for us, answer my questions and challenges as goddamned honestly as he did. So thank you, Seamus. We've got a two-part podcast teed up for you today. Part one is John Webster. Besides being my friend and former colleague in liberal politics, John is the president and CEO of Scotiabank Mortgage Authority. We're going to talk housing and housing affordability in this country, how we got to this point and where it's going from here. And we're also going to rewind it all the way back to the 1988 federal election. Webster was the national campaign director for John Turner. A coup was attempted to remove Mr. Turner as leader right in the middle of that campaign. We're going to reveal what really happened there. I want to tell you about two things about John, one of which is that he's one of my best friends and we've been on the same side of so many important and great fights in politics and he's the most brilliant and stalwart warrior you could ever have beside you in a political fight, absolutely the guy you want in a foxhole. But in, the, in addition to that, he's a business genius who basically invented uh, a part of the mortgage, uh, the mortgage industry and has had great success in that business. I'm so thrilled that he's on here. I had the incredible honor at John's request of delivering his induction nomination speech into the Canadian Mortgage Hall of Fame. Part two of the pod is our no-holds-barred, no-quarter-given political panel with me, Scott Reed, and Jenny Byrne. Lots to discuss and cuss about today. We're going to be focusing mostly on the Conservatives. Steve Outhouse, the Deputy Chief of Staff for Aaron O'Toole, has a side hustle. He's moonlighting as a paid consultant for prospective Conservative candidates. We'll talk about that. Pierre Pauly have made a video, a really good video, a tight 30 seconds of inflation-fighting superhero Pierre. But he didn't mention his party or his party leader. Interesting. We'll chat about why. And then, of course, we've got this upcoming election. What's the damn thing about? Other than, well, nothing so far. And is it going to be Trudeau's last, as some people speculate? And then, of course, we'll have our hey yous. Stick around for that. John Webster, the great John Webster. I want to thank you for coming on the Hurley Burley today. I've been trying to get you on for four years. It's my pleasure, David, to be here. I'm, I'm anticipating all these tough questions. <laughs> well, I always start out with a relatively easy question, John, which is how are you and where are you? How have you been handling the pandemic? I'm very well. I'm up at my place in Barry's Bay in the Algonquin Highlands, uh, which is as good as it gets in terms of having to be somewhere during COVID because it doesn't feel all that unnatural uh, when you're in a lockdown because the circumstances are pretty similar whether it was during a pandemic or not. Obviously, there are many changes, but it feels much more natural and you can get outside and uh, maintain some kind of perspective through these crazy times. So I've been here back and forth to Toronto, but mostly through the pandemic. So that's been um, a bit of a blessing. Um, but, you know, endless team meetings and uh, Zoom calls and you kind of everything sort of blurs in terms of your setting. But uh, I've done pretty well throughout the pandemic, as has our team. As you know, we've worked remotely for many years uh, in that business. So we were a little bit better positioned uh, when the pandemic hit to adjust. And then we had this crazy mortgage market um, that just continued throughout. So through this pandemic, with all the restrictions, we've never had a busier mortgage market or more mortgage market share growth. 
How has Beth handled you living at home for a year and a half? I think she's delighted. Um, I can't think, as you know, <laughs> with someone who would be more entertaining during a pandemic than myself. She describes my behavior as somewhat eccentric, but uh, compared to you, that makes me look uh, fairly normal. <laughs> All right. I'm wearing a Howard Chuck Strong t-shirt. And it's fair to say that I wouldn't be wearing that except for you. You want to tell us a little bit about this? Well, I'm, you can't read it on here probably, but this is also uh, one of Dale's t-shirts. So Howard Chuck Strong is a charity that uh, was created. Um, very unfortunately, big loss last year as Dale passed away after a years-long fight um, with uh, stomach cancer. Uh, prior to that, Dale and I, for the past uh, decade and a half, had run some charities, uh, charity golf tournaments in Muskoka and in Winnipeg, uh, which we uh, are going to carry on this fall in his name and in his memory. And those were events um, that were... Primarily, we gave to Easter Seals and other charities, but we took that on and we were very fortunate because of Dale and his standing in the hockey community to attract some of the most entertaining alumni from the NHL for both tournaments. It's an on-demand event where they would ask us to come because of their relationship with Dale, and you were fortunate in being able to participate in some of them, and it grew to be a bit of a family and a bit of a, and a community feeling, and we've been able, through Andrew Jack efforts to stand up a charity Howard Chuck Strong and continue that in Dale's name awesome yeah yeah you introduced me to Dale what a wonderful wonderful man he was um, and uh, I'm yeah I'm happy to continue to be to be part of this thing as long as as long as I don't get attacked by Sir Savard again that's another story um, well he um, so he, he he, he will attack. He's coming to the next event and he has uh, wants to continue his uh, discussion and your education on how you mismanaged the sponsorship scandal. And um, yes. I find myself I find myself reluctantly starting to side with him. So you better get in there and have a more vigorous debate. <laughs> you know, I never win the argument on that, John. I just never win the argument on that. Oh, Christ. OK, let's talk about housing. And you have, of course, a unique perspective on this, being in the mortgage business. Um, but we hear about how unaffordable it is now, and young people can't buy houses. What has changed for people of our vintage? What has changed in the housing market over time? And how much less affordable is it? Well, housing has been a hot topic. Um pre-pandemic and really took on uh, steam after the Great Recession and the U.S. housing collapse. And so it's been an endless uh, discussion around what's creating the issues uh, for housing, price, affordability, supply. I think that the reality is what people need to understand, what drives um, housing market demand is household formation. And in Canada, that's overwhelmingly immigration. Uh, 
And we've had record, record levels of immigration. The target, I think, by Marco this year is 400,000. And obviously, we had a pause during the pandemic. But for the last several years, we've had the highest levels of immigration ever. And typically, newcomers to Canada come. Um, they have some financial stability to begin with. And in two or three years, their overwhelming goal and desire is to buy a home. And so that drives... Um, the housing demand. What people haven't understood, and a lot of the institutions have been slow to respond, is that we just haven't created enough supply in Canada. Uh, we've taken a very deep look at that, and we're falling short on a daily, weekly, monthly, annual basis, creating enough dwellings. So there has been overwhelming demand because of household formation, and then ultra-low interest rates drive housing demand. And we've been in this record low interest rate environment for so long uh, that borrowers are conditioned to think that paying over 2% is expensive. So the reality is that that drives it as well. And also the macroeconomic circumstances, there has to be a bit of a wealth effect and people have to feel like they're doing better and that, you know, the surveys that you do, that they're feeling more confident about their economic future. And that all contributes to um, the, the psychology behind purchasing a home. We had a very successful program in Canada for first-time buyers that was stood up by CMHC and now includes two private insurers, and that helped first-time buyers. But that's become so restrictive in terms of its cap and availability in the urban markets like Toronto and Vancouver, where there's the highest demand of millennials looking to be first-time buyers, that that program really isn't available. So for that group of folks that are really seeking uh, to buy their first home, it has become tougher. But simply uh, simply put, the population growth in those high urban centers, the economic growth in those high econ uh, economic centers has led to um, price inflation in terms of dwellings. And that applies to all housing, you know, rental stock, um, assisted housing. We're in short supply um, right across the spectrum in housing. And it's really incumbent upon the three levels of government to jump in and be activists in speeding up the ability to develop and build more dwellings in Canada right across the country. And what's the impediment to that? Like, why can't that just happen? Well, the planning process is Byzantine. Uh, in all provinces. So it's about how long it takes to get something approved to be built. And that happens at the municipal level. It happens at the provincial level. And so what we think needs to happen is the federal government um, should really chair uh, a housing table and bring all the institutional players and stakeholders to the table and figure a way to streamline that whole development and approval process. And they need to bonus density and they need to do it in intelligent ways where there's transportation infrastructure. There, there needs to be less about levies and um, trying to make money off of this from the various um, governments that are involved. And it needs to be more about getting more housing built. Uh, both single family and condominium, all of this uh, needs to happen much faster. The, the, the process is very, very slow. 
If you're a builder like Mattamy and you want to turn around a subdivision in Southern Ontario, uh, perhaps that's going to take you five, six, 10 years, but you can do it in Austin in a year. So where are you going to deploy your capital is one issue. Um, trades, we don't have enough skilled trades. The government needs to get involved in that and, and fine tune their immigration policy as well as training programs in this country. Um, even if we could have more dwellings being built, we don't have enough folks to build them. Uh, I think that what we really need is a drive with key stakeholders at the table who commit to turning this around. But the approval process in all provinces and municipalities is very bureaucratic. It's very slow. It's very expensive. And as a result, when you're in a hyper market like we're in right now, we're going to continue to fall behind. What do you mean by governments making money off of the development process or the planning process? So um, if you're Bonnie sitting in Mississauga and you can charge development levies, that's a lot more attractive form of revenue uh, than increasing the mill rate on existing homes. Uh, so municipalities uh, have added, you know, a lot of costs. I uh, can't remember the last figure for, say, a freestanding dwelling in one of the track housing is, uh, you know, $160,000 plus just in development charges that adds to the cost of that home. So th that that's part of the issue. And it's also um, streamlining that approval process. It, it needs process redesign. It needs legislative amendment. It needs really, you know, the municipalities are creatures, as you know, of statute by the province. So the province has to step in and, and empower the municipalities to make changes. And the feds need to use their infrastructure money, in my view, to incent the provinces to, to, to get to the table. I believe that Minister Freeland is seized with this issue and that she thinks it's important and she's willing to take advice. So I'm hopeful uh, that the industry can come together in the next several months and try to come up with a game plan. If we're going to build more supply, uh, let's just take the Toronto, the GTA market. Where would you, where would you build it? I mean, we read about how all the young people are fleeing out to, or people are fleeing out to uh, Durham or to KW or uh, those areas to, to live now because they can't afford Toronto. Those prices are exploding in those areas. And just somebody once said to me something and it stuck with me and tell me if it's a crazy thought or not. But the guy said, if you live in Manhattan, you have to expect to live in a building like a, an apartment building, a condo building of some kind. People don't have single residential homes with backyards in Manhattan. If you want that, you live in Connecticut and you commute to Manhattan. If you want to live in Manhattan, you're living in an apartment building. People in Toronto seem to still expect that they'll be able to get a single-family unit dwelling inside the city of Toronto. There has been the Manhattanization effect in Toronto over the past decade. So, you know, it's natural if you were born, say, in Leaside, you think it's uh, your expectation that you can continue uh, in your life and your career to own a home in Leaside. And that's just not the reality anymore, as you've pointed out. So there was lots of nervousness around the uh, number of high-rise condominiums that went up in the city of Toronto. Now you've got that whole community south of Wellington, uh, largely populated by millennials. 
And that's a price point issue as well as a location and um, in terms of uh, commute uh, issue because it's it's difficult, as you know, uh, to get across the city. Um, so it's congested and it continues to get uh, a little worse. So there's been delay in development of that infrastructure at the municipal and provincial levels that have impacted that. But essentially... Uh, we built up, created a lot of units, and that actually created some rental housing stock that hasn't been built, purpose-built for rental in more than a quarter of a century. Essentially, in Canada, what happened, you know, pre-pandemic, there was quite a bit of demand uh, that was pent up, and it was releasing, and it was driven by low interest rates and uh, economic expectations. And then what you described in the pandemic, there was already starting to take uh, effect a bit of a phenomenon that realtors would describe as drive till you qualify. So you couldn't qualify for a mortgage at that price point. You drive a little further afield to find a community and a home where you could. During the pandemic, what happened when people couldn't travel and you had, you know, millennials looking for their first home going further afield, the pandemic allowed people to work remotely and they didn't have to deal with the commute. So a lot more folks that were looking for housing options would go further afield from Toronto and find a community that they felt could meet their expectations for education, healthcare, et cetera, all the things that they're looking for when they're trying to find a home. The reality is though, um, that's going to taper off. Uh, you know, part of that was, you're trapped inside, you want to be outside. So you're dwelling, you're looking at it, you're living in it 24, you're working there and you say, oh, this is not meeting my needs. So everyone says, oh, I need a bigger place. I need more space. I need to be outside. So, you know, that all created people moving further afield. And then a lot of people, as you know, obviously couldn't travel. And so they were not taking vacations. So they started buying recreational properties as well. And that, you know, you had uh, boomers that hadn't gotten into that market, getting into it along with uh, some older millennials picking up their first recreational property. All of these forces converged at one time during the pandemic. The one thing that wasn't happening was immigration and international students not being available in the urban markets. So uh, that had a temporary um, impact, but that's a pause in my view. So I think what you'll see is a return to the mean. Uh, there'll be less of this migration. In fact, in my local market, which was absolutely overwhelmed, you know, 40%, 50% increases in prices, um, that's changing already. It's softening a bit. So I think as we have the opening up, if we can get to the other side of the pandemic with the vaccination rate, I think you'll see less of that. You'll see more of a return um, to the city with the opening up. So I'm not sure that's a phenomenon that will continue. And it's not been that major. It has contributed to some of the non-major markets. But the housing markets right across the board, with the exception of Alberta and specifically Calgary, had been strong for quite a while. Calgary had to struggle through two, three oil shocks, and that impacted the housing market there and to a lesser extent in Edmonton. But across the uh, country, we saw that kind of demand. And in terms of Southern Ontario, that sort of movement uh, past Cambridge to Kitchener-Waterloo and south through the Niagara had already started to take, take shape. So I think post-pandemic, there will be people uh, that are still able to work remotely, but I think that uh, the majority of people will be at some point uh, back in their offices and that whole downtown ethos will continue.
It's been a hell of a last 17 months. But the good news is Canadians are getting their jabs. Patios are open. And people are smiling the kinds of smiles we haven't seen in quite a while. Real smiles. Wide smiles. Where you can see their teeth. The way we take care of our collective health is something we're rightly proud of in this country. It's not a perfect system, but it's better than most. And the thing is, we're working to make it better. Our presenting sponsor, TELUS, is an important part of that effort. That's never been more apparent than in the last year and a half, where we've all seen just how critical access to digital health resources has become. TELUS Health is Canada's largest and, frankly, most important IT healthcare provider. They've been investing and innovating in the area for 13 years now. Their purpose is as clear as a perfect high-res MRI file. TELUS Health is focused on helping to change the way Canadians experience healthcare so that everyone, no matter their socioeconomic background, has equal access to it. Just one example. During COVID-19, TELUS mobilized to immediately deliver multiple streams of virtual care technology to nearly 32,000 clinicians across the country. That's a fancy way of teeing up a really important outcome. Canadians could still visit with their doctors, see their test results, and get the treatment they needed, even while isolating at home. We're going to talk more about all this in the coming weeks, including how the expansion of 5G will improve services even more and add about $16 billion to our GDP over the next 20 years. But for now, Go to telus.com slash health. Who is still buying houses in Toronto or Vancouver? Like, I mean, um, we talk about it being unaffordable, but these houses are being bought and they're being bought at ever-increasing prices. I do not think, unless you were to help me, I do not think I would qualify to buy my own house right now, um, given the stress test and other things. So... Who is buying these houses and how are they buying them? Well, there. if you look at the demographic of the population, a few years back, you had a whole uh, cohort that were coming through and doing step-up buying. So they were existing home buyers that then were looking for their second or third house and a bigger house. And it depends where they are in their life cycle. But essentially, two things have happened. Uh, boomers are hanging on to their houses much longer than was predicted. And so that has created an issue about potential supply where people thought that they would be leaving their home and those would become available to create existing supply in the resale market. And then the next biggest group, as I mentioned, is new Canadians. They're overwhelmingly buying. They've been here a couple of years and they buy. That becomes their um, first and most important task. And often in many of the cultures, you'll have generations of a family get together to purchase a house. So that makes it more affordable. The other circumstance that has occurred and is occurring more often in the urban communities is people are creating some rental income out of their single family dwelling and, and say, renting out a, uh, a basement apartment, et cetera. And a lot of the municipalities have responded to allowing that in terms of uh, zoning to create some uh, additional rental stock. But essentially, it's driven by your uh, household formation. And that comes from your population that's growing. And, and, and getting into that market and their starting families. So those various cohorts. And then with the, uh, in Canada's case, overwhelmingly new Canadians. 
Okay. So and people are making more money than you think, David. That, 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 <laughs> I guess I'm just not making very much money. And the stress test isn't that stressful, right? I mean, people talk about the interest rate rise and how that will have an impact. And I always caution them because, I mean, when the uh, stress test, the Bank Canada stress test that, so for people who are listening, what happens is to qualify, you have to qualify at the higher of currently 5.25% or your contract rate plus 200 basis points. So if you were paying 4% in your contract, you would have to uh, qualify at six as opposed to the five and a quarter. But so all throughout the pandemic and currently, um, people have had an interest rate cushion of anywhere from 250 to 300 basis points anyways. So in the current market where everyone's trying to predict the reflation trade, uh, we're sitting at five-year money below 2%. So there's, there's a lot of room to get to five and a quarter. So those people are underwritten on their ability to service that debt. So that's important to bear in mind that all the people that got into this um, very hot housing market were underwritten at a much higher coupon. The second thing to remember is on the basis of your amortization, whether it's a 25-year or, or 20-year or 30-year loan to pay back all that principal, when you're at a very, very low interest rate like that, the largest proportion of your monthly or bi-weekly payment goes to retiring principal. So what's happening as the markets are rising and house prices are appreciating, people are creating more and more equity every month. And so as a result, there are a lot of people that bought five years ago that are sitting there saying, oh my God, I've got all this equity. So I want to build that backyard or I want to make an investment in the market. And they're having that realization. Right. So you are not worried, just to be clear then, you are not particularly worried that a rise in interest rates would cause a collapse in the market uh, similar to what happened in the States in 2007, 2008? No, I don't think that uh, that I foresee uh, a rapid rise in rates. Um, the last housing recession in Canada and I was around for it. People forget we're talking about double digit interest rates at that time. So the parallels aren't there. What you need to have that kind of issue, you need to have um, depressing house prices and rising interest rates. Uh, what we've had are appreciating house prices, notwithstanding all the Cassandras that said that that wasn't going to happen, as well as ultra low interest rates, that even if we are um, going to see uh, a rise in rates, which I think we will see over the next um, 12 to 18 months, the reality is there's enough of a cushion there. So I don't think that'll be a factor. Rising rates will dampen. Uh, because less people qualify, as you mentioned. But as, what I'm pointing out is people are qualifying now at five and a quarter, and they were qualifying right. at 479. Uh, so it's uh, you're in a world where you've got a 250, 300 basis point movement. Uh, that's going to take a lot of inflation if you look at the various uh, central banks and what they're predicting. So I don't think people need to be as concerned about that. Affordability is clearly an issue. And if you're starting out, it's very tough. What's tough isn't carrying the mortgage because I would make the argument it's cheaper for you Getting as a young person. Is getting the down payment. So then for those that are fortunate to come to the bank of mom and dad to help them with the down payment, and that happens more and more these days, um, they have a leg up on the process. But the reality is that's a very tough uh, hill to climb right now, as you mentioned, because the price point uh, is so high for people that are starting out. 
Yeah, somebody said it might take you 20, if you made the median income in Toronto, it might take you 25 years to save up a down payment at a normal savings rate. Yeah, that, and obviously you'd have to put together a plan to accelerate that and make different choices about lifestyle, right? And the one, the young people that I talk to that do that, that want to own their own place, uh, do exactly that and commit to, you know, typically you want to think about 30%, say, of your uh, net income being available for housing. And typically in those scenarios, you're looking at people that are committing to 50 or 60%. So it's pretty tough budgeting. You and I would not be able to do that. <laughs> no. <laughs> and when you talked about mom and dad, people are increasingly getting mom and dad to sign on to the mortgage too, aren't they? Is there any implications? Yes, they that? are. Not really. Um, you know, I think most people in terms of their estate planning and looking ahead, it's a question of, uh, do you want to help your kids out now when they need it? Or do you want to wait till when you're no longer around that? I think most of them are coming to the conclusion that housing is a really big issue. It's the biggest purchase that typically you or I or anybody else makes in their lifetime. And it's, uh, it's really important. And there's also uh, uh, the value of home ownership in Canada, as you would know, is still very strong. And I've always felt that we've never really had a public debate about that when we talked about assistance for first-time buyers. I think we had a, a, a tremendous program. CMHC has a lot to be proud of. But typically, as Canadians, instead of celebrating the contribution that that program brought to the stability of the housing market in Canada, we let a, a number of other foreign institutions tell us that we had it wrong. And as Canadians, we, we were humbled by it and immediately said, yes, we must be wrong. But I think we did have it right. It's a good program. It's a program that needs to continue. Um, it's been the subject of uh, some media uh, discussion, but that's brought, in my view, more heat than light. Uh, the program is very successful and should continue to be very successful. You know, home ownership, you talked about it and you often talk about it as being the most significant investment or just financial decision that a person is going to make in their lives. And six, seven years ago, I was out in Vancouver doing some focus groups. And I was talking to people who were objectively, in terms of income, middle class. And I was asking them what... Uh, it meant to be middle class in Canada. They did not feel that they were middle class, the group of people I was talking to, even though by income they were, because they saw they couldn't own a home and they saw no prospect that they could own a home. And to them, being middle class in Canada meant you owned your own home. That's part of the definition of being middle class. And, you know, we've seen a precipitous drop in the number of Canadians who claim that they're middle class. I mean... Um, I think this is a negative trend. I think this is, I, I mean, I think that home ownership and having a stake in your community and a stake in your society is an important thing. It's an important part of the fabric of Canada. I agree. I think across the country, historically, there was always this view that in Quebec in particular, there were, it was more of a renter society. There was lower levels of home ownership and home ownership aspiration. But if you look at the last 10 or 15 years, uh, it's gone completely in the other direction. And as I mentioned, new Canadians are overwhelmingly when they come here, they, they want to own a home and they, whether they think it's or ex expensive on relative terms, it isn't for, you know, the more, uh, 
the 1% internationally, they look at Sydney or Hong Kong, uh, look at other places where they wanted to put money in real estate. Uh, obviously, for the Asian community, Vancouver has always been a very, very uh, attractive market. And those kinds of things impact uh, locally and, and make it more difficult uh, with respect to affordability. And I don't see that... Um, relenting given the number of uh, actual expats in Hong Kong that are coming back and will be coming back to uh, Vancouver. That'll cause a little um, supply issue, I believe, in the Vancouver market in the short term. Uh, but but essentially, we want to blame uh, foreigners for our housing supply. We've come up with some other um, excuses in my view but really what we need to do is 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 turn the supply side around and that will impact affordability when we have more balanced markets we 15 years ago two to one new construction versus resale so if we uh you know there would be 500,000 new homes built and 250,000 resales it's the opposite today it's 500,000 resales and 250 or less thousand new homes built it's kind of stood on its head and of those new homes they're 60 to 70 percent condominium so uh this needs to be addressed and then and as i mentioned to you rent controls um, have made it unattractive for people to put their capital into um, purpose-built rental housing because we need rental accommodation, more rental accommodation, better rental accommodation, and we need affordable housing, nonprofit housing as well. Uh, the government's focus has been to get some headlines by saying they're going to throw some money at the nonprofit, but that won't impact uh, the demand supply equation. No, so let's get to what the government ought to do. And since we're on the verge of a federal election, let's focus on what the federal government ought to do um, in this in this area. When I see government announcements about housing, they generally involve, I don't know, 130 units or something like that somewhere. That doesn't seem to me like that's going to make much of a dent in the issue that we're talking about. So um, what is it that the government can do to stimulate the construction of the thousands and thousands of buildings that we need. Well, I think that the federal government can show leadership, pull together a housing table, get builders, developers, the other levels of government, municipalities, and the municipalities and the provinces all together at one table, along with lenders and all the people that have a stake in the housing game, and come up with a plan to expedite the building of units and supply. Uh, they can use their leadership. They can use their leverage with respect to infrastructure dollars. They can encourage the provinces to bonus density in the right places that they can agree upon from a planning point of view. And it's important for healthy communities as well, right, in living cities. All of this stuff uh, plays into uh, uh, environmental concerns and infrastructure concerns around transportation. It's, it's a very complex and difficult problem. But that's not a reason for avoiding addressing it. And if you look at the legislation across this country from a planning process, it hasn't been updated in years. There's too much nimbyism even at council. If you look at Toronto Council, there's a councillor there disproportionately uh, that can have a voice and stall development based on their particular neighbourhood. And you can't come at it that way. What you need to do is come at it from first principles in terms of what we're trying to do for supply and affordable housing. And once you've agreed on first principles, then 
provide the overlay of all the other concerns, whether that be local council or provincial regulation, building codes, etc. But there's a lot of smart people that could come together and come up with a plan. And even if it's going to take uh, the better part of 10 years uh, to try to get it going in the right direction, we need to make that investment now. And I do think that the federal government wants to take some leadership on this. I don't think it's a particularly partisan issue, though, as you and I know, it will become a partisan issue if you can leverage it to your benefit. Um, but the, the, the reality is, I think that if you were to go out and survey those folks, as you said, uh, the dream of home ownership is still very strong uh, for most voting Canadians. Some people in politics say that the Bank of Canada is fueling this housing bubble with its cheap and easy money policies. Is that true? Obviously, you know, the Bank of Canada has a multitude of considerations about the wealth and the health of the economy to make. And they had to make sure that there was liquidity in the markets. And so they had to provide that liquidity. And they did, a, in my view, a brilliant job. I think they learned all the lessons from the Great Recession. And in that instance, I think their reflection was that they moved too slow. And if you've got one bullet in your chamber, you use it. And so they did that. And I think they've been phenomenally successful through the pandemic um, to support the markets and create that liquidity. Liquidity. Having said that, and uh, that created this phenomenon of very cheap money, and as a result, that did stimulate the housing market. I don't think that that was an unintended consequence. I think if you listen to Tiff Macklin, he'll say that's exactly what happened. And as a result, it has fueled demand, and it's something that they're watchful of. As, as a lender, we're always uh, nervous about um, not only affordability for our communities but also from a point the point of view of being a prudential lender you want price stability and you don't want to see um the crazy swings or overheated markets right so i i think with the tools they had they've done what they needed to do but there's no question that cheap money um has influenced that but the reality is uh, uh, we were in the negative uh, fears of negative interest rates in europe before that we've been in that uh, circumstance in Japan for a long time. So I don't think that I would vilify uh, the Bank of Canada. They don't make decisions in isolations, and I think that they've made the right decisions. Cool. Okay. So, do you mind talking politics for a little bit? I'm just waiting to hear what you're going to ask. Don Newman, it sounds like. <laughs> so, for you young'uns who listen... And don't know who John is. Um, John retired from politics in 2006. But before that, he was a senior player in David Peterson's government in Ontario. He was a senior player in John Turner's leadership campaign in 1984. He was one of the people in the defense of John Turner's leadership in the review in 1986. He was the national campaign director for the Liberal Party in 1988 under John Turner. And then from then through to 2006, he co-chaired every Paul Martin campaign of any type um, with me. Um, so John's had an interesting vantage point over a long period of time. I've got a few specific questions. and I'm going to start with this one, which I gave you a heads up on. 
1988 election, there was a story on CBC News about an attempt to uh, an attempt to remove Turner as leader during the campaign. Campaign was going very badly. Liberals looked like they were in third. Um, and Turner's leadership appeared to be a big part of it. And the story implied that the senior members of the campaign team itself, the co-chairs of the campaign and others, had were part of this plot to remove Turner and probably to replace him with uh, Mr. Kretchen in the middle of the campaign. Um, this version of events by CBC was strenuously denied by all involved at the time. Now, almost all of the principals involved in that story are not with us anymore, John, sad as that is. And so I thought maybe I would get you to give us the straight goods on what happened around that period of time and the 1988 campaign. What's the true history there? Well, history is, as you know, how you record it. And uh, I can only give you the history from my perspective, because I can't speak for all the supposed co-conspirators. That just demonstrates to me that even before social media, everyone loved a good conspiracy uh, and all was in politics. You have to put it in context for your listeners, right? In 1984, John Turner returned to politics, having been um, one of the most celebrated political talents in this country and had gone into private practice and had been away for many years, but his exit um, as finance minister uh, was not on his own terms. And it, it was very disappointing to him and to a number of people in the party, as you know. So there were high expectations for him, too unrealistic. He came into the 84 campaign. People said he was rusty, but the reality was it wasn't just time. Um, he really wasn't ready for prime time. And uh, that was a disastrous campaign. The big debate, Mulroney wins. And, you know, when a party that was the natural governing party, like the Liberal Party, as you and I know, they're very unforgiving. So when uh, the 84 route with, you know, 40 caucus seats, a lot of disappointed former cabinet ministers, uh, the knives were out right after uh, Election Day in 1984. And as you know, that carried on. And so uh, he was under assault. Uh, there was a caucus revolt that's well documented uh, when I was there uh, that included our co-chair of election readiness at the time, uh, which was a bit disturbing. Uh, <laughs> when you're building a campaign, feels like the green feels like the Green Party today. Um, we also. Uh, <laughs> We, 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 we also had, you know, whatever you're the losing um, ticket on a leadership, uh, as you and I know, you don't go away, you just plan to uh, overthrow the incumbent. And uh, that was certainly well in, in hand in 84, to the extent that by 1986, as you said, there was a review vote challenging his leadership uh, that I was one of the central figures in, and, and we were very successful at beating that back. But it also involved really uh, the icons and mainstream of the Liberal Party that had created many successful uh, elections and governments who were behind that, which was, that was pretty tough for an institution that was at the time one of the largest volunteer institutions in the country to go through that kind of internecine and uh, warfare. And so there was a lot of blood on the rug by the time we got to the election call in 88. Um, that campaign, as you recall, was a long one by today's standards. 
But there were really, in my view, three campaigns. There was sort of the pre-debate campaign, which was an absolute unmitigated disaster. Uh, then there was the post-debate, um, both uh, the French and English debate euphoria, where we climbed back to tie and then were ahead of the Conservatives. And those were giddy times. And then we had the third segment, which was the blow up the bridge, Hugh Siegel campaign. And uh, Marty Goldfarb and I always commiserated that if that election had just been one week earlier, we both would have looked a lot smarter. Uh, but as it turned out, um, you know, timing in, in, in politics is like, location and real estate and we just didn't have the timing down there were a number of people who were disaffected with uh turner's leadership um it was a difficult time they felt that he wasn't responding to what needed to be done they all thought that Kretchen would uh, be able to take over and and win uh, i don't know how seriously anyone really thought through how you would pull that off uh, uh, during a campaign with the whole voting public focusing to say okay we're going to dump this leader put this one in and then we'll win the election um seems more than far-fetched but i think more than it, i don't i wouldn't say there was a full-blown conspiracy there was lots of uh variety of different conversations that were being held um, in co-conspiratorial fashion. Some of the more prominent members of caucus were much more public uh, than people would believe. I used to get a lot of late night phone calls telling me what a disaster. When you're only at 40 and the expectation is you could do less, uh, they felt they were saving the party, I think. Um, there's the story, and it's true, that Kirby, uh, Michael Kirby had put some names in a poll that we had commissioned. I think that's where Newman got the story, right, that these uh, names had gone through. I did not know, I was not aware of that until after the fact that that had been done, and, and that's embarrassing given that we were supposed to be commissioning the work and uh, looking at the questionnaire design, but Michael had slipped those in, and... Um, I don't know that that was part of any kind of a plan, certainly not on his part, uh, but it, 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 all those pieces came together. And so then Newman and, and, and Peter uh, felt that there was enough to air that story. Um, and it was, uh, I, I, as one of the participants watching the broadcast that night, because Newman had come over to the campaign headquarters and given us a heads up that we were about to be eviscerated. Uh, I think everyone sat there in shock, horror and disbelief. Um, so was it a conspiracy? No. Was there a lot of senior, disaffected, well-positioned people in the party and in the campaign structure that wanted Turner to resign? Yes. Did people go to him and ask him to quit? Not that I know of. Uh, I don't believe that, it, it, that, that there may have been conversations about having that kind of a uh, uh, a delegation. I think there were people going back and forth to talk to Kretchen. I don't think any of that was sanctioned. I think, you know how this works, people feeling out. And then, of course, in politics, no one can keep a secret. So then it leaks and everybody talks too much to journalists with half-baked uh, stories. And, and that's what happened. Uh, but what took over was the dynamic of the campaign. I mean, some of the biggest critics that used to call me after the debate were the biggest fans, right? So we had some momentum, it looked like uh, we could, uh, we, we might be able to pull this off. And so the whole sentiment changed. And then it changed again as we got uh, to the last five or six days before uh, the voting ballots opened up. Whenever anybody wins the leadership. Yeah. 
whenever anybody wins a leadership, there's always a discussion about, you know, uh, should they reach out and involve a lot of people, build a big tent from all the groups around the campaign, or should they uh, stick with their own people? Turner always had a lot of people in his senior ranks uh, who had either overtly supported other candidates or who were of dubious loyalty to him. Um, if when, What do you think about yeah. that in retrospect? Well, personally, it was very frustrating, right? Because I, uh, I lived that. I know who was on the other side of uh, wanting to dump him as a leader. You'll remember that convention in Ottawa in 86. Uh, um, the Secretary General uh, marched in the uh, apparent uh, Jean Chrétien down to standing ovation. Uh, needless to say, this was uh, discomforting to all of us. Uh, we were prepared for that. So that's always a challenge. Big tent, you want to keep your enemies close. The idea is that you want to be, as a leader, you're going to represent everybody. So you bring folks in, you think that are symbols of opposition to your leadership and you're magnanimous. You and I know that when you go into a campaign, that that's disastrous because you can't count on those people. Their heart's not in the fight. Uh, they are... Uh, very tempted uh, to undermine you. And so I found it very frustrating, uh, both in terms of the loyalty of some of the people he picked, but also the competency. Uh, you know, we had some communication specialists that you and I are very familiar with, or we're no longer with us. Some of the most, some of the most ridiculous moments in my life were witnessing the advice they gave him and I could barely restrain myself. Um, and he, <laughs> as you know, with, with what people, I don't think many people appreciate about John Turner was he, he was a very fair minded, uh, individual and, uh, he would give people a first, second and third chance. He wasn't vindictive. Uh, he, he believed in parliament. He really did believe in uh, vigorous opposition, but the cut and thrust at the end of the day, you know, he wanted it to be like he and Diefenbaker. We could yell at each other in the house, but then sit down and, and talk about the, the great issues of the day, and it would be collegial. He believed that all of his opponents also believed that, which was difficult. And he certainly could not comprehend that people in the same party uh, would do that to him. So, uh, it's a character flaw or is it he's of a higher character uh, than some of his adversaries? I always admired him for being so even-handed. I couldn't do it. I wanted to actually, as you know, David, I wanted to take immediate action. Um, and I was young and uh, lacked a lot of restraint. So, uh, But he needed that because he was surrounded by people who kept betraying him really was really was <clears throat> okay we're about to have an early election call in federally and whenever there's rumors about an early election call people always say oh you know people could be very upset about an early election call and it could you could be david peterson you could have what you could have what happened to david peterson happen to you and I keep telling people, I don't think David Peterson lost because he called the election early. I think he lost because of a bunch of other factors. You were there right on top of it. Am I right or wrong? 
Okay, so let's be clear about that. Um, that was my wife that did the 1990 campaign, not me. And so I was not there for that long. <laughs> I, I was there for the parade in 87. Uh, in 85, as you know, we were uh, absolutely silly with the notion that after 42 years, we'd replaced the, the Bill Davis uh, progressive conservatives. And we got Bob Ray to sign that accord, much to, you know, knowing that if we went through to that, that we'd be the beneficiaries. So we had an 85 minority and it was a real breath of fresh air in Ontario. And then the 87 election, we spanked everybody. So that was good. And that's why I uh, had moved on to the uh, federal election in the run up to 88 at that time. But I'd had 40 of the 130 ridings under me in the 87 campaign and we swept them. And I was very disappointed they went early because it made no sense to me. You've always told me that the early writ pull, you know, that becomes an issue for about a week and it goes away. And I think you're probably right. I don't think that it had much as much to do uh, with the early call, though it added to the issue that the government had become a little arrogant and out of touch. I think that the Captain Canada stuff on Meech was really miscalculated. He thought that he and Frank and all his friends sitting around the premier's table were going to solve uh, the Meech Lake issue. It was a very divisive issue for our own party, both uh, uh, federally, as you know. Uh, it's a very div divisive and thorny issue in Canada since we created this country. Why he thought that with uh, his particular style that he could be Captain Canada, uh, I think that got him off the, the really seminal issues in that campaign and it got him distracted. And then the early call just contributed to that whole issue. Now, I don't think voters at the time understood what they were creating. I don't think that they realized they were going to get an NDP government, obviously, but it was very much as governments defeat themselves. They don't get elected, right? And and it was a strange brew. People thought they could vote in protest for the NDP and it wouldn't elect Bob Ray. Um, but that's what happened. So an early call, in my view, is always dangerous. I know you don't think it is as dangerous. I don't think it's dangerous in the current circumstances as I see it because they have this uh, unique opportunity again where neither of the other leaders look very attractive or in sync with where most Canadians' views are. And, and, and I think they're on the right side of the pandemic. And if you look at the other pandemic elections that have taken place, and if I was sitting around that table and people gave me those data points, I'd probably say the risk of an early call um, are not as great as the reward of a potential majority, given that the opposition is only going to strengthen, people are going to get disaffected and forget what you did if they think you did good things in the pandemic. So I think it's probably the right call. You sort of dismissed the two opposition leaders, and let's dismiss O'Toole for now. But if you were under the age of 35, there's a pretty good chance you'd think Singh was a pretty cool guy. What do you make of that? Um, I don't think it's about age. Uh, I, honestly, I don't find his uh, performance that compelling and his uh, positioning on a lot of the tough issues, even dealing with his own party. And then when I've seen him out there, he, he seems to be struggling in search of, uh, of where he should make his stand. Uh, and so I've seen a bunch of flip-flops early. Um, doesn't seem to me to be someone of uh, that carries a lot of principles, you know, that has something that they want to do. I haven't heard that articulated. Um, 
And the other guy is just sort of Andrew Shear plus, right? Like the uh, uh, equal, you know, I, I don't know. It's a race to see who is more ineffective. You and I both. Been. I wish we'd had. I wish we'd had those guys as opponents, other than Harper. He was a lot tougher. Yeah, he was. A, he, he. Yeah. Well, when you talked about timing in politics, uh, we've never had it. We have never had it. Uh, maybe you had it in '85, but that's about the only time. Um, you and I both been watching the Liberal Party for over thirty years, and for the last fifteen, you with some distance from it me with less. Um, do you think it's changed over that time as an institution? Oh, I'm sure it's changed. Party? Yeah, for sure. For sure. It's changed. Right. Uh, and it's a different, uh, is it a different organization than it was, uh, in 2006, 2004, 1988. I'm not so sure in terms of where it stands in terms of values. I don't think it's changed dramatically. Uh, but it has changed. I mean, when we were campaigning, social media as uh, having its impact was just beginning, right? And now it's a completely different world. So uh, that's changed the party. And, you know, I came from that uh, history and tradition of delegated conventions. That seems to uh, have uh, had its day. And, and, and on the dynamics around that and persuasion and what you do in campaigns have, have changed. The media has become so much more fragmented. You mentioned David Peterson. I see now that he's like the chair of, of the star, whatever that institution is, digitally going forward. I mean, newspapers were so important to us back then, the Saturday star, et cetera. None of that matters anymore. So, uh, and, and it's difficult to see um, where that will end in terms of the impact that that has on political reporting and some of the myth-making that takes place uh, online. So I think that's impacted the political parties and the political apparatus. I don't feel that, um, that, you know, that people that I meet in the party structure have any appreciation for the history and the traditions. Uh, there's not a lot of loyalty. Um, that being said, Probably people like you and I that have spent the better part of our adult lives doing that probably always feel that way uh, when we're no longer um, players in the game. And as soon as we were again, we'd be re-enthused and say, no, it's a wonderful institution. Uh, but uh, I mean, with, with respect to Paul, there were so many things that I agreed with him about his vision for the country in terms of we're a small country with a huge neighbor. We need to find ways to create wealth. We need to keep the economy going. We need to be fiscally responsible. At the same time, we've got to be socially progressive. And, you know, I sit here now and I look at the daycare issue and I think about uh, your great recruit and what Ken Dryden pulled together and that we're right back to the future. Those were the things that you and I cared about. Uh, when I think about the Kelowna Accord and where we are today, like, could it be more topical? Like, I think we were on the right side, David, of those issues following Paul's leadership. Those were things that he cared deeply about. And he had a vision that both you and I believed in. I, I don't meet a lot of people today involved in the process that have that kind of commitment. Um, I had that kind of commitment and belief in John Turner when I started. Um, and so it, it, it's different today. I think it's much more um, transactional. And, um, and in some areas, it's, it's unclear to me what is the party doing 
Is it really just um, a vague organization uh, that's thrown together between elections? It doesn't seem to have that grindstone quality of real policy renewal. It doesn't seem to have that activism that we used to see. I mean, I met so many people from uh, different communities across Toronto as I grew up in the Liberal Party and through that process that really represented those communities emerging, whether it was in the Sikh community or in the more traditional communities who felt underrepresented. And that really made me excited to be part of that. I well, originally it was the Italians, was right? To be honest, originally it was the yes. Italians. And, and originally they, it was the Italians. I mean, that's... They, Absolutely. You know, I grew up fighting Iano and Volpe only to become um, their allies. Uh, no, no question. Yeah. It was that. And they, you know, they taught us uh, a lot about political organization. Uh, but I think that's all sort of, it's different now. I, I, I don't relate to it. Um, and I'm, I, I mean, both of you and I were frustrated, like we try to put people in place to achieve great public life and do noble things and then once you get them there they ignore you anyways right so then they blame it on government so what's the point <laughs> well that 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 see that seems a reasonable that seems a reasonable point at which to uh, which to end this john um thanks for getting up early at barry's bay to do this um it's been so much fun for me to be able to talk to you on this show and i have to say i haven't seen you in like a year and a half and so yeah uh, we got to rectify that um we, as as soon as we can miss the hell out of you we 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 are overdue uh that's for sure uh to reminisce tell some lies i have to do a shout out to your biggest fan ron butler uh, if you're out there ron say good things on social media about this podcast uh, or you're going to get the Hurley Webster uh, Harper treatment. Uh, but no, it's good to see you, David. Really, uh, it's very good to see you and, and Chad. I love you, brother, and I look forward to seeing you soon. Yeah, take care. Thanks for doing it, John. So let me tell you a few things about trains. They might seem like they haven't changed much over the decades, but let me tell you, when you catch a glimpse of a modern train, you're looking at an incredibly efficient, computerized masterpiece of transportation technology. Our sponsor, CN, is at the cutting edge of the railroad industry, constantly pushing to make its locomotives and cars more fuel efficient, greener, yes, I said greener, and far safer than the trains your mom and dad watched from their car windows. CN trains, like modern cars, have what amounts to a high-tech nervous system that monitors speed, proximity to other trains and objects, even whether the train is entering a work zone. It will initiate braking independently. CN locomotives are far more fuel efficient than they were even 20 years ago with a smaller carbon footprint and so much safer. Sensors equipped with artificial intelligence along CN tracks are constantly monitoring train wheels for overheating or flaws. Sensors on board the trains constantly inspect the tracks. Ultrasound technology examines the interior of CN's rails. Ground-penetrating radar assesses the ground underneath them. It all combines to get CN cargo to its destination on time and safely. There is no form of overland shipping as efficient and clean as rail. 
And through its pending merger with Kansas City Southern Railway, CN means to connect the continent. Its network will stretch from coast to coast in Canada, down through 18 states and deep into Mexico. The first truly North American railway, headquartered in Montreal. All right, if it's Tuesday morning, it's the Hurley Burley political panel with the indomitable Jenny Reed. <laughs> <laughs> Jenny Reed. Well, we have a little announcement to make, listeners. These long and lonely months of COVID have resulted in the inevitable. I, I stood beneath the takeout sign of the East Rod Avenue and I asked for her hand in marriage. I said, you don't have to take my name. She said, I want to take your name. <laughs> My business partner Andrew is going to be all upset about this. He's done a lot of branding and marketing on Jenny Reed and Associates. He's Jenny Reed and Associates now. Wait till he finds out you're expecting. <laughs> okay, if it's Tuesday morning, it must be the Hurley Burley political panel with the indomitable Jenny Byrne and the infamous Scott Reed. Morning, <laughs> folks. How are we today? Awesome. There are men in my backyard, and this is an evergreen statement, but there are men in my backyard today tearing down the back fence. <laughs> So this pod may be interrupted by the sounds of an insane duck toller because he's very freaked out at the presence of, of uh, strangers. A lot of, lot of right. chaos going on in the house today. Lovely background, Jenny. Where do we find you? I'm in Lindsay. Uh, uh, I'm, at my, uh, I'm at my dad's. Normally I do it on the back porch, but it's uh, on the back deck, but it's raining. So I'm, the front porch is covered. So that's why I'm, I'm here. What does dad think about the Habs number one pick? First round pick. Uh, he's fine with it. Uh, it's become very, it's become a very political, uh, it's become a very political uh, uh, issue. But I think that probably where Bergevon was, um, uh, was that someone was going to pick him. So uh, why not them? I, I think he was going to be picked. It just it depended on which team kind of decided they were going to deal with any of the fallout. What, what amazes me is that the Canadians don't appear to have anticipated their reaction to it. They don't appear to have been ready. The people that were up answering questions don't look like they anticipated the questions that they were going to get. Um, and as an organization, uh, I mean, surely Molson was briefed and knew what was going to happen. I mean, they've, they really seem to have misunderstood the reaction to what they were doing. Well, that presser that you sent around with what's his face uh, was, Timmons. was Trevor Timmons. It was yeah. it was painful to watch. Well, because like uh, I don't like the pick, and I don't like the uh, I don't like it at all. And I'm not against second choice chances; uh, just the opposite. Goodness knows, I've asked for about thirty of them. But you know this this kid committed a criminal act. He was convicted as a criminal. He said he's going to take a year. He wanted to not be drafted, and. You know, I just don't understand the the logic of doing it. Um, but in addition to that, it's the fundamental point you're saying that Timmons interview, like for Pete's sake, um, 
to me, it, what's so alarming about it is, well, obviously you guys aren't competent. Like, I, I, like if you, if you're so casual about this choice, if you so fully fail to anticipate what the obvious reaction would be, that you can't even answer, well, if the kid asked not to be drafted, how come you drafted him? And he just stands there and stares. Uh, like, it's just, that's, that's baseline incompetence. And that's just unacceptable. It was, it was like he actually didn't know that, that, uh, that the, the kid said he didn't want to be drafted. It was like, it was like he was yeah. hearing it for the first time and didn't know how to answer it. I, I think... It listen, was like I he think- didn't know he was the assistant general manager of the Montreal Canadiens. He just stood there <laughs> looking around. Are you, this is directed to me? <laughs> Where am I? What is this, what is this room I'm in? Um, uh, I, you listen, I think there are a lot of, uh, there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of talk on this. I think there are a lot of people that is like, are like, he was a 17 year old uh, kid who made a very big mistake and obviously recognizes that. Thank God. Thankfully that we're not all judged by what we do uh, at 17. We were lucky enough to have no social media or cell phones when uh, we were, uh, when we were that age. No question. No question about that. But the kid asked not to be drafted and he hadn't fully apologized. I just think there's a hundred other choices that could have been made that would have been better. And it just, it, and, and if you're going to do it, then you better have a full and robust defense of it and an explanation for what you're doing and how you're going to go about it. And they didn't have sweet fuck all. Well, I think like one of the things you would do is you would talk to the kid between his statement and you drafting him. Like you would do that. And they did not do that. And so they aren't able to answer the questions. He said he shouldn't be drafted. You drafted him. What what made you think that he was wrong and that he, I mean like they just they they didn't uh, they didn't think this through. Now they're busy, but they didn't uh, uh, they didn't think this through. Hey, Scott. Yeah. John Webster. John Webster was on the show this week, this I morning. I love Webster. I and, love Webster. Yeah. Miss, miss my well, he says hello to miss you. This is my impression of Webster for people who are looking. He's always brushing brushing the hair out of his face, brushing the hair out of his face, pulling the cigar out of his mouth. Fuck you, Reed. Fuck you, Reed. <laughs> fucking legend. Hurley's a fucking legend. A fucking legend. Don't you fucking talk that way about my friend Hurley. He's a legend. I love John Webster. Well, he both demystified the housing affordability issue for us this morning and told some old war stories about politics. But he did say that he thought that you would have something to add to the podcast in terms of uh, Ray Hurd, John Turner's most uh, infamous, I'll use that term again, uh, communications uh, advisor of all the ones that he had. Um, And uh, so I don't know, do you got anything for us? He hates, so I should say to people that don't know who Ray Hurd is, I'm not going to explain who he is because it's not worth knowing who he is, but you can go online and you will detect quickly how much he hates me. Jenny, he hates me and David. He hates me and David. So, you know, he, he at like at the barest hint of, of, of public exposure of David and I, Dave will be on CBC, I'll be on the radio. He will take to social media. I, I, I know David Hurley. He doesn't know anything. He destroyed Paul Martin. Him and that little fuck friend of his, Scott Reed, they destroyed Paul Martin. He was on track for the largest majority in Canadian history, and they ruined it. They turned it to ash. They're so stupid. I took over John Turner, and I helped him double his caucus. When I left, his caucus was twice as big. I am a success. He's a failure. And he sounds like a like a right asshole. Oh, he's a lovely. He's a gem of a fella. And yeah, 
Oh yeah, no, no, that's thank you, Jenny. Thank you, Jenny, for summing that up. That was perfect. So from the ridiculous to the sublime. Oh my. I got uh, a tremendous amount of feedback last week to how great an interview Seamus O'Regan did um, on this podcast. And I know that you both thought it was an excellent interview on his part. So why don't we just unpack it for a second? What about it made it, from your standpoints, such a good political interview for a politician to do? Well, I think it was it was real. It was it was forthright. He he gave a very uh, spirited uh, uh, defense of oil and gas, which I think uh, more so than a lot of conservative politicians have done. Uh, uh, if you're an Albertan sitting there and and you weren't listening to a liberal uh, a liberal minister, I think you'd probably be uh, you were probably a bit shocked when you were uh, when you're listening to it. And I think it was realistic also. Like he when he you know David, there were some people on. The, the, online that uh, said when he corrected you on kind of net zero by 2050 he said it's not like there's not going to be oil and gas in 20 or th- there's not gonna be oil production in 2050 it just means it's going to be net zero so it's it's it was a very frank frank interview and he, it was also entertaining he was very um uh he was very uh uh you know emotional like he was emotional at times i i know when he was talking about his dad passing away in the fall you know as someone i lost my mom and I still choke up talking about her sometimes. You could tell it's very raw. So I just, it was from start to finish. Uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, like, I've known Seamus a long time, and I don't know that I've ever heard him better. Um, I, th- I, th- I, th- I just echo a lot of what Jenny said. It was an absolute clinic. And, and I think he moved with such ease and facility and charm from politics like he didn't do that bullshit politician thing where like anytime you would raise like a pure political consideration you'd be like oh no 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 this thing's never in our head i just sit in a i, I sit in a, <laughs> a room and try to imagine what the best possible outcome could be for 10 years hence like he talked politics when when necessary um without appearing cynical or jaded and all that stuff he he showed enormous uh, command of the policy files that he's that he's uh, with, which I think some people think, oh, I've seen Seamus. I know him. He was on Kennedy AM. He's just a talking head. Well, I think he really astonished those people. He really danced across the keyboard of uh, the oil and gas uh, issue set, and I think really um, was really impressive, but obviously in a way that you could unmistakable to understand where he was coming from, what the considerations were. It was a sensible conversation. And then, you know, the personal. And, you know, that's gotten a lot of the attention, but, you know, talking about his father, you know, talking about that conversion vote and how deeply it affected him, um, that wasn't put on. Those things weren't manufactured. That wasn't uh, like that was dead dog, serious, real stuff. And so you just you put all that together and you go, holy smokes, man, that is um, uh, that is a real powerhouse performance. And so I just thought I thought it was really quite staggering. I don't know that you've had anybody on. Who's given a better interview than than that? I have one. I have. I had one. One criticism of the interview, and I think we're going to come to this because I think you wanted to raise it as a topic, David. And it was his answer to what the election is going to be all about. So I don't know if that's. I don't want to foreshadow yeah. too heavily. Like we're going to get to that later, but I. What did I you thought disagree- that even for all his skill, I didn't think that he handled that question very what did, well. And, and what did you dis- What did you disagree with, Scott? Build back well, better. 
Yeah. I, I, like, I, as you know, I'm on the record as saying I hate the build back better phrase, yeah. and he literally employed it. But I thought that he, he used the construction that concerns me and that I think could be trouble uh, for the liberals, which is, look, we we did a good job of managing COVID. And if we can manage, if, if we're the guys that you, you you now know you could have trusted to manage the pandemic, then we're the right people to trust you to manage the way forward. And we're going to build back better. And I don't like that construction. Um, I don't like that. I mean, fundamentally, that doesn't tell me anything. I don't know what the bargain is. It It is basically, I'm going to campaign on trust. You can trust me because what I've done. And I don't think that's a way to get reelected. I think that's way too soft. I think it's leading with your throat exposed. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, I know that liberals have a ton of structural advantages. They have a bunch of circumstantial advantages right now, but I don't like that answer. And that's not his fault, but it worries me. It's not his fault because I assume that's the script right now. And I think the script's got to get better before they drop this writ. <clears throat> All right. So this week, and I'm going to apologize to Jenny, but this week we're going to take a deep dive into the Conservative Party. Um, and it's not, it's, not, uh, it's, it's not driven by a desire to sort of put a pin in them. It is driven by the fact <laughs> that I think they're the most interesting thing in politics right now. Um, in Canadian politics right now, and a lot hinges on what <laughs> a lot hinges in, on what they do. I'm sure that we'll have interesting isn't translating into winning, unfortunately. No, no, it's only interesting at the it's only interesting at the moment, and I I'm sure that Prime Minister Trudeau will give us things to talk about over the course of the campaign because normally when he's this far ahead, he gets confident, and that's when he gives us things to talk about. So, um, but for now. Let's talk about the Conservatives. Um, let's start with this. Why is Derek Sloan starting his own party rather than joining uh, Max Bernier's operation? What's that all about? What's going on with Sloan? I have no idea. I've never had a conversation with Derek Sloan. Um, uh, I assume that right. uh, Max is... I, I, I'm, I'm making the assumption, just from having read about it, I'm making the assumption that m maybe Max didn't want him. Really? What would be the issue between? Uh, what would be the issue between? Well, Derek Sloan seems he is he is uh, uh, nutty is a is a is a good way to 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 uh, uh, I think to say it. I, I I don't know what the issue would be, David. I haven't spoken with Max Bernier, or I've never spoken with Derek Sloan, and I haven't spoken with Max Bernier in years. So asking that you're not talking about you're not doing a deep dive on the Conservative Party. You're you're now trying to ask me to speculate about different parties. <laughs> Isn't the answer off? Yeah, no, it's true. Why? What? Isn't the answer off? I mean, it is like, we're not the front of the Judean people. We're the Judean people's front. Fuck off. Like, isn't it that kind of situation? <laughs> like, for sure, though, right? Like, like Are you going to use the Ray Hurd uh, accent for the, for the rest of the plot? I just might. I just might. <laughs> um, boy, I hope they get a hold of him. They, might, they can put him in the harness. They'll really take off. Um, I, but Bernier is... And, and there's almost nothing I like about the guy, but he is at least clearly an unapologetic libertarian. He has no social conservative uh, dimension to him whatsoever, right? And and Sloan comes, you know, to a lot of his positions by way of real fundamental, deep social conservatism, right? And I mean, small c conservatism, right? Like so, organized evangelical religious groups, so that kind of so. So they're from that, like those. The, in here, they may end up at similar positions on some issues. Like they both end up being anti-vaxxers, but coming from very different points of origin, right? Like Sloan is one of those guys of, I don't need a vaccine. Jesus will look after me. And, 
you know, Bernier is coming at it from don't tell I don't want government telling me what to do. So I, I, I could say they they might not. They sit across from the table from each other and they might not have a whole hell of a lot to talk about. Bernier is like, let's screw all the waitresses. And Sloan is like, let's read Bible verse. And uh, those are very different dates. <laughs> Isn't that true? Isn't that, that's them. <laughs> okay, so People's Party, whatever the Sloan operation is, the Maverick Party, people on the right are being given a lot of options other than the Conservative Party, and they'll all be unpopular. They'll all be marginal, but one or two points is going to matter here or there in a in a bunch of different writings. One of the things I was wondering as I was watching this unfold is where is Leslin Lewis? And why aren't the conservatives employing Leslin Lewis as a person to reel those people, those voters back in and to affiliate her with O'Toole so people see that balance that they wanted uh, in the leadership? She came out of the leadership as the star, as the le- not Sloan, as the leading spokesperson for a wing of the party. And uh, it was she was supposed to be a big deal. She was supposed to be important. She's running in the election. And then I haven't heard a word from her since. Why aren't they using her? Well, listen, I think I think Leslin's uh, obviously very, uh, very talented. But I think to say she's a spokesperson for a certain wing of the party, I think, is overstating it. I think there were a lot of people in the that yeah. didn't want to vote for Peter and didn't want to vote for Aaron uh, who wouldn't identify as social conservative, who wouldn't identify as Western conservatives that that ended up uh, that ended up voting for her. So I think that to say her her reach in the party is as large as what it is, I think is 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 an oversimplification. Okay. It's oversimplifying it. And so right. she's also she's also a a, a fairly um, green candidate. So she she ran in 2015. She ran for the leadership. But, you know, we, we kind of saw like during the debates, for example, uh, and I know, Scott, you and I covered one, I think, uh, together on on uh, on uh, CTV before we were we were married uh, last summer, and uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, she she didn't perform as well as what people were expecting. Like the expectations on her were high because of where she was. So I think if if you're the party and if you're Leslin, you're she's you know in a riding where I think the Conservatives will hold. If we don't hold hold them in Norfolk, then we're gonna we're in like a lot of fucking trouble. Trouble. And uh, I think she's probably just, uh, I think she's probably, uh, she's probably doing that. And, and, and that's not like. Why like, did I think Bob Speller could hold Haldeman Norfolk in 2006? Almost did, but didn't. Yeah. Well, you lost it in 2004. Diane Finley won in 04. Right, 2004. Sorry, that's right. Yeah, that's right. I was the Ontario desk. I know these ridings. We went from two to <laughs> four. Um, I. <coughs> So, so I think that I just think it's it's. Uh, listen, it, I've been very frank about the problems that I think Aaron has. I don't think employing uh, uh, surrogates uh, at this point is uh, uh, is really is really going to help him. I think that that conservatives are looking for their own narrative. It's it's they're looking for Aaron to do something other than a carbon tax and talking about you know fiscal stabilization. He was out in Newfoundland yesterday where he reannounced what he had talked about. Um, in Alberta, it was, it was, it was, uh, it was, it was bizarre. So I think that, that the conservatives, uh, the, the, you know, Aaron is the leader. Leslin wasn't, isn't. So, um, he's going to have to, uh, pick up his game. 
Okay. So the last thing, and Jenny, um, <laughs> you're not going to be in the spotlight this the whole time, but I suspect you're going to have to take the lead on this question too. And this is my SoCon triplicate, and this is the last of them. Um, so Steve Outhouse, the deputy chief of staff to Aaron O'Toole. Um, so first of all, there was this big story that came out about O'Toole giving contracts to conservative insiders out of his office budget. Yeah. I don't really know why that's a story. That's who gets contracts out of leaders' offices are party insiders who are doing specific jobs for the party. Um, and so I didn't understand why that was a story, but of course the conservatives had started it by attacking Pitfield, and so that's all dumb. But in the midst of it was this unusual story about uh, the deputy chief of staff being involved in a business that was itself running nomination campaigns for specific candidates, and, and specifically, I think, for SOCON uh, candidates. And that is, um, I mean, that is unbelievable because the leader's office uh, with the exception of maybe the occasional superstar candidate, is not supposed to be involving itself in nominations. And in fact, people look to the infrastructure of the party to be scrupulously neutral about these things. And so uh, that's a very bizarre conflict of interest to have led into the leader's office. Well, so, yes. So I think that, like, people get involved in nominations. There's a difference between putting your finger on the scale and tipping the scale and, and, uh, and helping a candidate as opposed to getting paid. You're right. The story on the insiders getting contracts out of the OLO. I know one person was named getting a contract. And my understanding is, uh, it basically was, uh, you know, his company did telephone town halls that the, you know, Aaron did when he was first elected. That's all, that's all good. I agree with you. And, and I actually have never agreed with the, with, with, with us going after, uh, uh, the Pitfield, uh, the pit, the Pitfield issue. S Steve is so Steve ran um, uh, Leslin's campaign. He was her campaign manager. He's run other campaigns. He's very, very skilled, and uh, um, and he's a friend of mine. And I think that you know he he had his own company, and I don't think that the the, the mistake was his. I think it was obviously when they asked him to be deputy chief of staff, and he was a good get for them, a great get. Um, he obviously said, I'd still like to do this, this side business. And they said, yes. So the mistake was, was allowing it to happen in, in the first place. Like I, uh, like it, it, it's, it's incredible to me that this would be allowed having done nominate, having helped nominations, having helped candidates. I, I, in no way was I, I, I've never been paid a for a nomination and I definitely like would not happen as deputy chief of staff to the PM, as director of issues management, or as national campaign director. So it was a huge mistake. It's it's kind of caused reverberations, uh, uh, a lot of them through caucus. I think it would have been bigger. There was a nomination in Simcoe North um, where uh, Steve was was working on a, a what someone's campaign who lost to my friend, um, uh, my friend Adam Chambers, uh, and I put on the record I was I was helping uh, I was helping. Uh, Adam, I was doing GOTV calls on Sunday, and so um, I, I think that if 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 I think if Steve's candidate had won in that nomination, I think there would be even bigger issues right now uh, uh, in, internally. Right. Scott, you got a take on this? Yeah, yeah. Like, first of all, I just want to start by saying I know that he's Jenny's friend, and so what I'm not going to do because I'm also over the age of 13, 
is make any mention whatsoever of the fact that his last name is Outhouse. I'm not going there. It'd be easy for me to go there, but I'm not going to go there. So I'm just, I just want some cred for passing that by. Um, look, I, I, I just want to take one second because I'm not sure that everybody understands like why O'Toole's operation was wrong to raise this issue in the first place uh, and why it was particularly wrong to raise it when they knew that they had this situation with Outhouse. So, uh, like, I, I just, we both blown, we, you both have blown through it very quickly, but people get so up on their high horse these days and they say, oh my God, it's taxpayers' money and it shouldn't be going towards political purposes. And that is wrong. And if it isn't wrong, then we should have a big argument about it. But when they say, look, there's going to be budgetary resources dedicated to the leader of the opposition's office or any leader's office, including the sitting prime minister, but the leader's office, there's budget resources for the um, uh, for the caucus uh, services and for the research bureau. Um, that is to ensure that they have a sharp political operation under the notion that if those things are well-financed and well-done, then you will have a better opposition leader. You will have a better leader. They will be more pointed and thoughtful in their uh, attack. And your choice when it comes time to vote will be better for all of that. And like, if you don't believe in that, that's fine. But I really strongly believe in that. And I think it's only natural, as you said, David, that <laughs> if you're going to have resources set aside and budget set aside for the leader's caucus services and the leaders research bureau then it only makes sense they're going to use that money to hire staff that they know and trust to hire advisors that they know and trust to get the services. what are you going to do put it out to tender and end up with david mosscrop as your uh, head of oppo research yeah, or something Scott, like what Scott, Crazy. I agree. Scott, i agree with you but there is a difference between yes you want to hire political people like anyone that doesn't um, they would be idiots. Um, yeah. You, you want to hire political people. There is a difference, though, be between hiring political people and then having those people get contracts to actually affect um, uh, internal party races. They're totally I gotta come, I'm going to come to that. I, totally I 100% different. agree. I just, okay. I just want to establish on the first point because I don't think many people accept the first point. Lots of people pick up the newspaper right. and they go, oh, my God, I can't believe it. They're abusing taxpayers' money. And that's not happening. And that's not true. And this is a fair and justified use of funds, whether it's an O'Toole's operation or whether it's in uh, Justin Trudeau's or whether it was in Tom Mulcair's or Jagmeet Singh's. Like, it's just – it is a justified – Use of it, and so O'Toole's operation was wrong to go after it for cynical purposes, thinking they would score a hit. They were also stupid to go after it, knowing that the inevitable consequence was they were going to take a story about their very similar use of it. And as you point out, Jenny, they've got a guy in their operation doing something that is not typical, right? Also working on the side to support nomination meetings, and this is what I think is so upsetting about it. The reason it's a conflict of interest, and I don't mean that in some legalistic way, it's a it's a genuine like conflict, like contrary to the interests of, uh, of of the person that you're properly working for, which is the leader. If a nation battle is going to be interfered with by the leader's office, by people in the leader's office, then I am to I am to assume that the political operations surrounding the leader, including the leader, either implicitly or explicitly, has decided they have a preference in that riding. And some people think that's terrible and all that and whatever. I don't. That's fine. Let it go. But if you've got a guy who says, well, on the side, I'm doing 
a contract issue. And so this doesn't necessarily reflect what the leader's position is. This is just me and I got like a side hustle and I make some money extra on it. Then it's enormously confusing to people in the party going, well, does this guy speak for the leader? Is that what the leader really opens? And at minimum, it leaves the leader exposed, particularly this guy's only working for or heavily working for social conservatives. It leads the leader exposed to, he must therefore want that crop of candidates. That must be what he wants. Otherwise, he would never permit this. So it's a startling conflict of interest. And O'Toole is an idiot forever permitting it to occur. And uh, I've, I've never seen it happen before. Like you say, you've never done it. I've never seen it happen. You can't have somebody in the leader's operation running uh, sidebar uh, self-interested uh, nomination battles. You just can't. Like it's just, it is in a startling conflict of interest. Eve, Eve Adams. Eve Adams. <laughs> well, that, 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 those, those. <laughs> That, that's that's like we that's for another podcast. But yes, but but, but <laughs> that wasn't someone working for the government. That was that was party. That mm-hmm. was someone working for the party and yeah. and uh, and working on uh, working on a on, a nomination. And the thing is, we've all helped candidates in nominations uh, behind the scenes because that's what the uh, the leader wanted. Um, yeah, but there were consequences that when when the person yeah. when the person yeah. was caught. Sure he was. was he was uh, he was fired and good. By the way, he's involved in this thing too. So let's take a step I don't back. Think he's, he let's is, take I, a step I, back. I, I, not I, in I, the outhouse operation, right? No, it was. It's a con. It, there was a contract to uh, Dan Robertson, right. which my understanding was um, uh, was for uh, was for transition. So let's take a step back and look at the bigger picture with respect to the conservatives in this election, and it's something that I've been thinking about for a number of years, dating back to pre-2019 for sure, is what does it do to your mentality to think that you have to win a majority in order to govern? So when you were trying to take down the Martin government, Jenny, you were operating on the basis that if you won the most seats, if you defeat, if you beat us and won the most seats, you'd be the government. That was your objective, win more seats than us. And that was true. My feeling now is that if the Conservatives ended up with a similar result to 2006, that they wouldn't form the government. That some combination of the Liberals, Bloc, and NDP would still form a government. Because... I don't think so. um, The Conservatives operate outside their... outside the other party's... um, voter pool so much. I don't see how the NDP voter pool would tolerate them putting the conservatives into office. So you okay. disagree with my premise. So that's I, interesting. I'd like to, I'd like to hear that because my, I, my question has always been, they have a tougher challenge. Like Trudeau can only end up with a minority and still be okay. But I don't think that's true of O'Toole. Yeah, I, no, I disagree. I, 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 I disagree. I actually don't think it's it because it's in no one's interest. It is not in, the NDP or Jagmeet Singh's interest to uh, have a coalition with uh, uh, with the Liberal Party, and uh, they saw what happened before. They're they're definitely not going to do one with the Bloc. The the only election in my lifetime that it's been relevant was 2011 because uh, the three parties that we were running against uh, actually did sign a coalition agreement. Uh, uh, you know, Dion. Uh, uh, Dion, Layton, and uh, and Duceppe signed an agreement that said they were going to form a coalition. So it was relevant in 2011. I don't think it's been relevant since. 
I, I think it's a really interesting question. Um, my general view is whoever gets the most seats, I, and I know there are going to be all these parliamentary procedure and constitutional scholars will come forward and argue about this. And they do Listen, we, you and I, you and I were part of big debates about this in 2006, leading up to the vote. Yeah. We had big conversations about this, right? Big time. But my my view is, mm-hmm. if you get the most seats, you get a you should get an opportunity to form government, and then the onus is on you. And th- and this is where I think this question, the point you're making, becomes really interesting, David. Because I think rather than saying, well, O'Toole won't even be able to proceed if he should win a, a, a plurality of seats, that he shouldn't even be allowed to proceed, um, that he won't be able to get together something. I, I, think, I think the interesting question is whether the burden on the conservative leader would be higher than it would be on, say, the liberal leader in that situation. So that what I mean by that specifically is I think there will be so much distrust among NDP supporters, caucus members even, of working with the conservatives and the fear of what that might appear, that the that the burden will be really high on, say, O'Toole if he were to win a plurality of seats. He'll have to say, all right, I'm going to hammer out a very clear agenda and a typically clear agenda and say, these are the priorities we'll move on legislatively so that Singh can say, well, I've secured agreement on these are what the five, six, seven priorities are going to be. And therefore, uh, we can support those things. And that's a governing agenda that w- that, that is worthwhile our support. I, I think, and, and Trudeau wouldn't face it. Trudeau's been able to bluff it through, you know, sort of piecemeal his way. And, and, and as you do typically in a minority government, I think you may find that 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 alienation that um, that the non-conservative voter bloc feels toward um, conservatives may mean that if, if if you only want a plurality of seats, you may have to come forward with a detailed agenda to rally the support of other parties. I think that this is an interesting conversation I, for people like us. I don't think I, I don't think it's it is ever going to happen. It it, it would be insanity. Uh, uh, the liberals don't need it, and it would be insane. The NDP would take any form of relevancy they have. They're, they, 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 they are, for the most part, fighting the Liberals for, for votes. So if, if people, that, their supporters, if I'm, an, if I'm a member of the NDP and he forms a coalition with, uh, with Trudeau, I'm really mad because there's a reason I didn't vote for Justin Trudeau. I voted for Jagmeet Singh. And I don't think people care what his list of priorities are or what deals he might, like what policies. No one's going to remember that at the end of the day. I just, I don't think, I think this is a, this conversation, like, I, I just, I don't see in any way it's going to, uh, it's going to happen because it makes no sense for either of them. Hmm. I don't know. I have that. a different take on the NDP. I really do. I mean, like, I think that the ND, every NDP voters second choice is going to be liberal, um, or 90% of the NDP voters second choice is going to be liberal. And if the, if the NDP, after running a campaign that is basically going to say, um, uh, we're the people who keep the liberals honest, we're the people who make the liberals do what they promised they're going to do, we're the people who keep the liberals socially progressive, and that's our role in Parliament. And, um, and then they turn around and put the Conservatives into office. Well, I envy the person who runs the liberal campaign in the election after that, because I think you could fucking run the NDP right out of town. Yes, which is exactly why. Why would the NDP do it? It's just, but the problem is you're both right. It's 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 such a difficult spot for the NDP to be in, right? Because, um, because if they're seen to be supporting a conservative government, their voter base will loathe it. 
But their biggest enemy is not the conservatives; it's it's the liberals. So they, you know, they've got this. Um, but how would? But how would? How would being an opposition party to the NDP? Or to the conservatives, the NDP be seen as supporting the the conservatives. And it's not well, because like if they have a pour out, they're no, going to have to support Scott, them with their votes. But Scott, this well, it'll well, be vote by to. vote. We we survived through a minority for five yeah. years. Like so, it's so because the liberals voted with you. Because the liberals well, were voting with you on on different issues. Like it 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 it, it matters. It matters on the issue. So um, I. So I just, I don't, I just, I don't see it. This is not a country. We are not a country where people are used to coalition governments. So it's also not that NDP voters in Saskatchewan or BC are going to say, well, they better form a coalition. It doesn't happen here. So they're, they're not used to that. So yeah, I, I'm I not think, saying a coalition. I, well, I'm but just that's, saying, what it, that's what it would have to be. So Well, I don't think like, so. I just think that the burden would be, I think that in order to justify voting confidence on things, uh, for the NDP leader in a conservative government, the NDP leader is going to have to say, well, hang on, we got this out of it. And they'll have to be a little bit more explicit than they would necessarily require out of the Liberals. I just so, you're think that's a- so, so you're talking about a merger of the NDP and the Liberals, which is great for you guys because no, you're the big I'm spoon. Not. I don't understand. No. They're working on the assumption the Liberals will automatically vote no uh, to anything the Conservatives bring forward. So, on but to, if on. there's not a formal... Yeah, okay. So if there's not a formal coalition... This is, this is how it goes. If there's not a formal coalition and the Conservatives govern, and the first vote, uh, uh, they don't like the speech from the throne, they can vote them down, and we're back into an election. Boom. Right. Right, but you don't want that if you're the Conservatives, and so it's like, what's it going to take to get the NDP support? And I just think that the price is going to be higher in terms of the specificity of measures, because the NDP is going to need, the NDP leader is going to need to say, see, I got this, and so that's cool. And that gives me a pass, my voter block, who doesn't like it. What would be a big mistake, The NDP are going to have their, Jenny... What? Jenny, the NDP are going to have their own list of cat. The NDP are going to have their own list of catalog items that you can buy with your carbon tax credits. <laughs> That's right. They may not like toasters. They may not like toasters or coffee makers. They- but a lot of it is practical, and a lot of it is they'll 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 put out issues for show if this happens. And I think this is such an academic conversation. I think it, it's like it's like choose your own adventure. What we're going down now. Um, but but it's it, it also is from it's also from a practical point of view. Part of the reason why. Um, I, parties, even if they, they, they don't support what's going on, they don't, uh, they don't vote against the government is because they practically cannot have an election. They practically cannot run one. They have no money. They have no candidates. It's, 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 a, there's so many, it's not, it's not a big policy wonk fest with people sitting around going, if they don't do X, we're walking out. It's there, are, there are so many issues that, that, that come into play when you're talking about whether to call an election, force an election, uh, what have you, that, that, that I just think that's, it's like, that's why I don't, I, I don't see the NDP, the NDP or liberals or anyone, uh, right afterwards, uh, wanting to have one. Okay. You're no fun. You're okay. No so fun. let's move I to this debate. If there's life, you are on, no fun. If there's no. life on other planets, what is their favorite brand of coffee? And you don't want to play, and you're stick in the mud. I don't. I, how did we ever get together? <laughs> oh, no hypotheticals. What the hell? Um, all right. So you mentioned this, Jenny O'Toole went out to Alberta and spoke about the financial stability and federal provincial transfers, and we thought that was weird. And then he went to Newfoundland yesterday, and he did it again. Now. 
as you know, you don't get to Newfoundland that many times in the course of a writ period. So um, you don't really want to blow one. And, and that is an issue I'm just going to assert, you guys can disagree with me, that isn't going to move any votes at all. Like there's just no voter attachment to uh, that kind of uh, internal governance procedure issue. So am I being impatient in wanting Aaron O'Toole to tell me what the case is for defeating the government and what this election is about? Or is he wise to be waiting until the writ is actually in place before he lays out what's the fundamental wedge between these two parties? No, I, I think that, that it's, it, they, they, it's something he should have been talking about from his leadership onwards. People, we assume because we're politicos that people... Uh, hear something once and and they know what the uh, what the ballot question is or what uh, someone's trying to say and that's not the case you have to you were you were it's it's repetition and so um, uh, no David I don't think you're being impatient um, I feel I feel the same way I, I don't think that uh, I think that Aaron was trying to yesterday talk about natural resources uh, and obviously uh, oil uh, 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 in uh, in Newfoundland without really seeming like he was talking about oil it's kind of like he was out in Alberta talking about equal. He was trying to talk about equalization without talking about it. And so I think that like it's it's the if a tree falls in the forest, uh, uh, you know, doesn't make a sound. I think that the 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 problem is 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 that um, you know he's being a bit cute. And I've always said conservatives don't do cute well. We don't do cute, witty, funny. We we don't do those things very well. And so. Um, I think he has you, to be you do all of those things extremely well. <laughs> you personally do all of those well, things extremely well. I appreciate it. I'm talking about the collective <laughs> we. Um, and uh, so I think it's I, I think that uh, I, I don't think they should wait. I don't think it's on on day one of the election they come up with a, they come out with a ballot question. I, I just I think it's it will be uh, uh, it will be too late. So I assume he's on the road in Atlantic Canada. I heard he's in New Brunswick. Um, uh, he's in New Brunswick later this week, maybe today. So we'll see if there's going to be more uh, of this. If he's still talking fiscal stabilization when he hits New Brunswick, it's it, 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 like I, I hope I, I sincerely hope that that is not going to be the centerpiece of uh, of uh, the next election for, for the conservatives. I don't know. A lot of people swept a large group of seats uh, into the House of Commons on a uh, platform of fiscal stabilization. Um, it's the kind of thing that <laughs> stirs the bones. Um, I, I, the only thing I can, I, I don't, I, I'm not going to pretend to say that I get it. Um, because when people want you to talk about equalization and your responses, I think I'll talk about stabilization. You're not even, you're, you're obviously already, you're not talking to most people. And then you're not giving the people that are paying attention the answer they want. So the only thing I can think, and it, it is a million miles away from what's my core critique of this government, why I ought to be elected and they ought not to be. Um, so the only thing I can think if I want to ascribe um, strategic in, uh, intent here is that they are attempting to get, they want to diffuse this. They think that this could be an issue for them during a writ and they want to try to diffuse it and get it sunk with their, um, not so much even their voters, but with with their supporters who are focused on this in the places where people do care about these issues, like Alberta, like um, like Newfoundland, and then to a lesser degree, a couple of the other Atlantic provinces. Quebec, well, it's a big, big one, it's Quebec. Quebec right. and Alberta are the, are the big dogs in this debate. I, I don't even, but 
I mean, I know they're going to go through the motions, but I think they're just absolutely underwater in Quebec. So, um, but I think, um, so I think maybe if there's, if you're trying to, I'm not saying this is what I would do, but if I'm trying to interpret what they're up to and why it isn't completely irrational, I, I wonder if they're trying to say, look, guys, whether you like it or not, this is fundamentally going to be our answer on this. This is going to be our shield on this. This is the line we're going to carry through the campaign. We're going to establish that in public so it's indisputable, right? So don't bother trying to convince me otherwise. This is going to be the line. This is the way we're going to carry this thing. You're better off with me than you are with Trudeau. So this is the party line. We're going to sink this now. And then so we don't have to talk about it during the campaign. And as a, so it's a shield, not a, not a, not a sword. That's the only thing I can think of. I just well, don't know if it works very well because Kenny's yeah. going to talk about equalization during an election campaign. Well, he has to, he has to talk about equalization. Alberta's having a referendum um, on uh, on equalization uh, uh, that corresponds with their municipal election, which which is in October. So it's there's going to be there's going to be no choice but for candidates and for uh, politicians in Alberta to talk about equalization. And so I think. Aaron went out to Alberta. I think he actually, to your point, Scott, I agree. I think he thought this was a sword or a shield and, and you know, was trying to diffuse it. And I don't think it, it did. It's, I, I said this when we were, when I, when I did the pod from, uh, when I did the pod from Alberta, um, uh, people, people like are, it's a high, it is, it's, it's a high knowledge topic of, of Albertans. And I think that not saying the words equalization, um, uh, you know, people will see that. I think that, Aaron will be pushed on this during the campaign. And I think conservative candidates will be pushed on this during the campaign. And my prediction is they will be a lot more bullish and will actually say the words equalization than what uh, probably the, uh, the war room wants them to. And I, and I don't, and I don't think that there's anything that the war room can do um, uh, can do at this point. And it's, and, and, and the strategy up until now is obviously not working. If you look at the public polling, uh, the numbers uh, from the prairies, uh, we are down significantly from where we were in the 20, uh, uh, in the 2019 campaign, it's it's shocking. Actually, if if the if the public polling numbers are are accurate, it's 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 shocking. Yeah, it really is. The Lyle stuff was amazing, and Nanos has had the conservatives in the toilet out there, although bouncing back, um, bouncing back a little bit. Um, so here's you're headed. You're two weeks from a writ, and you're trying to figure out how to start your campaign. Now you wish that you had done more before the campaign in terms of pre-positioning your leader, pre-positioning on issues. You wish all that had happened, but it hasn't happened. And so here you are in the position that they're in. Nobody knows who O'Toole is. Nobody knows what the party offering is. What do you start with? Do you start by introducing O'Toole to people, or do you start by stating the case for the defeat of the government? Scott, you go first. I've been doing most of the talking. I would start with the um, uh, the case for defeating the government. I think they've got to say there's a problem. I mean, right now, the advantage that Trudeau has is that people are relatively content. I mean, obviously, that's not a universal statement, but it, the polls tell you that 39% of people are willing to reelect him. So people are relatively content. In this next window, the economy is going to be rising in terms of its uh, sturdiness. Um, we're probably not going to hit fourth wave territory during this rip period. So you've got a, you got that sweet spot. So I, I, I think you have to start by saying there's a problem, this is it, and it's their problem. So then you come to, and I've got a fix for it, but I think you've got to establish, uh, here's, here's the problem. And you hope that you get helped on that 
by a government that drifts into a campaign that doesn't have a really sharp offering. But I think you have to start with, here's what you ought to be worried about. Here's what you are worried about. Here's what I understand that the government does not. Here's what I am focused on that the government is taking for granted. I think you absolutely have to start with that. It's got to be really sharp, really clear, and really resonant. And I think there's hints in public polling about where that critique should be um, should be clustered. But I would definitely start with that. I think if you take the if it would be hubris to say I want to tell you about our jet fighter leader and how wonderful he is. I don't <laughs> think people, no. Start with the critique. Well, to, to follow the theme of, uh, for the most part, this pod, I agree with Scott. I, um, I would kind of forget that. It's kind of too late for the introductions. I think that um, I, I think that the economy is, I think there's, there is, we've seen in the polls now that, that the economy is starting to become top of mind uh, uh, to people. I've talked to candidates who have, uh, who have now uh, said that CERB and CRA uh, and the handling of CERB came up on the doors. It was very well handled in the first few months of the pandemic when I think a lot of people thought that it was uh, uh, w- thought it was very short term. There's a lot of resentment from people out there now that people are still on CERB when obviously there are, are continued reports of, you know, restaurants and stores that are not able to find people that are willing to come in. People are going to say CERB is over. So you're talking about some successor but, to CERB, yes, right? Whatever the new yes, thing is. Yeah. Whatever the yeah. new thing is. But that's, yeah. that's yeah. the CERB. The 3.0 or whatever, but I say serve because yeah. I, I mean just like the 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 that and so um, yeah. I think the economy is is the issue and I think that uh, Pierre Pauly I put out a video this weekend or on Friday um, talking about inflation and and uh, the uptick on social media was absolutely huge. It was a well done video and and I think that uh, uh, I think that's that's the direction that the party should uh, that Aaron should uh, uh, should uh, should take because I think that that's that's from what I've talked to of candidates like across the country. That is, that is what's, that is the thing that's going to resonate. People vote based on what personally affects them. It was a really good video. None, not, no less an expert than the Hurley Burley senior counsel on advertising. David Rosenberg said he loved its energy. Um, and um, so it was a really good video. Um, and, What's interesting about it to me, among many things that's interesting about it, is the connection it tried to make between affordability and the cost of living, which is top of mind for most Canadians right now, and the deficit. Now, what we know from the 1990s is that people don't generally care other than there's a core of people that are fiscal, uh, that really fiscal responsibility really matters to them. But most people don't really care about government deficits until it starts to have an impact on them, until they perceive that it has an impact on them. And I've always said that one of the reasons why Martin was able to do what he did was that we'd reached a point in the country where people were blaming the recession in the country on the deficit. And so there was a direct negative consequence of the deficit that made people say, okay, I guess we have to deal with this thing as unpleasant as that is. Yep. Preston, and, Ma- Preston um, Manning gave you guys some cover as well. A lot of cover. A lot of cover. <laughs> um, it was quite, quite helpful to have an opposition party that was saying you weren't going far enough. Herb um, stood up in the middle and, of one of Paul's budget speeches and began to applaud in the middle of his speech. You're like, hey, Herb, oh, you're on I the love- other team, eh? God love you. <laughs> I love Herb. <laughs> yeah. Just an honest guy. Loved the budget. But uh, so what I'm going to what I was going to say is we've lost that 
connection over time between the deficit and anything that matters to individual people. So Canadians have been watching deficits build since 2015 with no real reaction to it. So this is Polyev trying to make a connection between something that matters to you a lot and this federal government policy that seems benign. And I'm going to be interested. He does it effectively, I think, in that spot. But that would have to be a concerted offensive, I think, to make that connection stick in the general public. So it'll be interesting to me to see whether O'Toole picks that up. I, I loved the video. Um, and as a, as, as a liberal, I was alarmed by it because to me, it encapsulated the things that I've been warning on this pod and elsewhere that I think that uh, could be trouble uh, for the government. And, and it is because of this pocket of, of economic issues and it's kitchen table affordability is where the sweet spot is. It, 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 to your point, I don't even think so much about the deficit as he mentions borrowing. Like I like, he goes from uh, high housing prices, rising price of gasoline, uh, endless borrowing Food. and what's that going to mean for food and what's that going to mean for you? And so he slips the borrowing thing in which we know is a vague, un, imprecise fear that people have. Like they just, you know, people will raise it, right? Like even they don't necessarily want any kind of agenda of austerity, but they just kind of go, well, how, how does that work? How is it that we can we can have like a $300 billion deficit and how does that continue on? So by by pulling all those things together, but not saying the answer is a drive to a zero deficit within two years, by not saying that. But just saying, and the problem is it's going to hammer you in terms of your ability to make the choices you want in your day-to-day -day life. I think that's a powerful economic argument. It will at some point have to be followed up with a prescription, but that's that's like week four, right? And and so I thought it was powerful. As you know, I have mixed feelings about Pierre. I didn't really like the Russell Oliver pointing at the camera at the end going, hey, baby, come on down. But it was a really tight, good, well-produced piece. And I I really think that, you know, to my mind, this election is going to be about the economy. And it isn't just going to be about who do you trust to manage the economy. Like, I, I think for the liberals, that video tells you we need an affordability narrative. We need to have a, a, a message on that. There's a race happening in my mind right now that isn't being witnessed. A race to get to who owns the affordability issue and who is going to be able to make it their voting uh, advantage. And and you can't let the conservatives uh, get ahead of you on that if you're the liberals thinking, well, we got a 14-point lead and we're going to be okay. They've got to have a response to that video. Because if O'Toole is able to articulate that same message, put those things together, the wrong answer is, well, hang on a second. What, what he's really talking about is secondary bonds and through the Bank of Canada. And this is why that argument is incorrect. And next thing you know, everyone's giving him, you know, a TED talk on um, on central bank policies. And that is not the rebuttal to that video. Uh, you can have that argument if you want, but it is not going to win you in the election. You need to trumpet not um, not you know critique it and poo-poo it and say well here's what the uh, intellectual failings of uh, this argument are. So, Jenny, just one small thing about the video, which is the lack of any mention of O'Toole, which is normally frowned upon in political parties. We live in a very leader-centric age where you are obliged to pay homage to your leader at all. At all opportunities, I remember in the 2019 campaign, driving down the uh, 
uh, airport parkway in Ottawa and seeing all the David McGinty signs that were David McGinty personal signs. He'd had no Trudeau signage of any kind on that, stri- on that strip want, of road. Why, and I, why would you want to put the leader's name on your lawn signs? The leader's name's not. Well, no, but these were big. The leader's names. Were, these were. Okay, go ahead. They had no liberals. Had no had no liberal signage. No no Trudeau signage, and these were big, massive signs. And I just thought to myself, you know, Trudeau drives down this road twice a week during the election campaign. He's going to see these signs, and your chances for cabinet are diminishing, in my view. Um, well, I, but Polyev puts out the video, and there's, and I mean, like, what's the audience for the video, and why would no tool be in it or mentioned in it? Uh, well, I think the audience for the video is obviously the voters in Carleton. Um, I, it's a, it's a, okay. a it, you know, it's, it's, it's pre-rex. It's, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's, you know, that's where the, the view is. I think, I, I don't think it's that unusual. I, uh, I, I think that a lot of candidates I've seen a lot of lit pieces, uh, in the last, uh, uh, in the last couple, couple months. And I, and I don't see Aaron's name. Uh, I don't see Aaron in, in that at all. I think that, you know, if you're a local campaign, if if your leader pulls high, you 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 add him to the bat, you add him to your lit. If uh, you're lit in your messaging, if he doesn't, then uh, uh, then you just have your own name because your your own name is the only one on the on the ballot. So um, I actually have yet to see, and I'm sure some pr- people can prove me wrong. I have yet to see a candidate who's use who's using like a an HQ uh, an HQ lit, like so the the stuff that that the, the headquarters would just devise and send and say, you know, stick in, st- stick in your, your campaign office location and your own picture and use this. I have yet to see a right. candidate um, who has, uh, who has uh, used that, who has been using uh, any of that stuff. They've, they've all been on their own, which is it's, but it makes sense based on any of the polling we've seen uh, in terms of Aaron's, uh, Aaron's approval rating. Well, I okay. don't want to. So the last question before, what? Go, 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 yeah, go, go, go. Is- I'm not going to get into a full-fledged rebuttal of any of that. Um, but I don't think the audience for that video were the voters of Carlton. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> um, okay. Um, I do sense that a lot of conservatives are looking past this election to the future. Um, yeah. Speaking of looking speaking of looking to the future, I read repeatedly out there people saying, that once Trudeau wins this election, he's going to quit in the next couple of years. That he's, um, I, I, I saw, I see people on Twitter assert this matter of factly. I see it crop up in articles. Dude, I think I've said it on the podcast. People, <laughs> where do people get this idea? I'm not going to predict that somebody's going to voluntarily resign the prime ministership until one person has ever done it. Nobody's ever done it in Canadian history. People leave this job when they are defeated or when they are facing imminent, certain defeat. Point for now. So, because it's a pretty good job. It's fun. I think people like doing it. Uh, I think it's, yeah, it's a a great job. I I think that, uh, um, I, I think that they, I think that, Listen, I'm going to t- say the podcast is the reason that, because I've said this before, I think if you're Trudeau, you win a majority, uh, you stay for a year and a half to two years, you go and get like some kind of gig like your buddy Carney has at the UN, and you get paid then a hundred grand a year, a hundred grand a speech to uh, do the, the, uh, the circuit, and you leave on a high note. 
And if the economy's in trouble, especially, you hand like a pile of shit over to Christopher Freeland or Mark Carney to like then wear it in the in the twenty uh, twenty four uh, the twenty twenty five election. I one billion percent disagree. I just don't think there's any chance. I mean, and and this is this. This is like what kind of coffee do they drink on the planet Zed uh, kind of conversation. It is pure speculation. But my view is not just as a general rule, like you say, David, like, you know, these people don't leave unless they're carried out. But like, what do we know about Trudeau that would lead us to believe that he would like to do something other than this? Right. This guy um, likes to be at the center of things. He uh, likes a high profile. Um, He likes to command the camera. Uh, he is a lot more decisive than, than his critics think and likes making decisions. And I just don't like no job you're going to get after this job of being a G7 leader is going to matter as much. And there may be things that are more attractive and that you don't have to work as hard and you can make more money and uh, you get, you know, whatever time for a face scrub or whatever to Christ it might be that turns your crank. But I just don't think that the stuff that turns the crank of the people that work their whole life to be prime minister, uh, nothing compares with being prime minister. So I don't think there's a chance in hell he's going to quit. I don't think there's a chance in hell he looks and says, or any prime minister looks and says, gee, you know, the economy looks like it's tough. You know what? I think it would be better if somebody else managed this problem. They're always going to say, I think me and the decisions I'll make are better off to handle this. You know what? If there's going to be political jeopardy here and the chance of losing votes, I'm the one that's going to be able to thread that needle. That it's just, it's, it's for, I just don't, do not believe whatsoever there's any chance that he's going to leave in a year and a half because I don't think there's anything that's better for him to do in a year and a half. I'm going to play a, a, a viewer and listener participation game. And I'm start with the term viewer because if you're not watching this pod on YouTube, you really should because Scott is a fucking revelation oh my every week. Uh, absolutely. Um, but, <laughs> but here's my viewer participate. Here's my viewer participation game. People who have resigned from the top job in government and could have won the next election. Federally, nobody. People might say Pearson, but John Turner told me that Pearson was forced out by a cabinet revolt after Bob Stanfield was elected conservative leader and the Liberal Party was convinced that Stanfield would beat Pearson, so he was forced out. So that's so. with that off the table, I say nobody federally has ever done it. Provincially, Bill Davis, Peter Lougheed, Frank McKenna, Stephen McNeil. Anybody else can add to that list? Let me know what it is. Social media types, you got an, a name that you would add to that list of people who have resigned when they could likely have won the subsequent election. I'd be interested to hear it. It's a short, short list of people. All right, team. It's time for our hey yous. I'll start. I'll go quickly. Scott. Oh, Scott, you go ahead. I just want to say, no, I want Jen, Jenny can go first, but I just do want to say that Scott, Scott is like the new Goldhawk. Goldhawk <laughs> fights back. Scott gets action. Gets action. That's right. Scott gets action. People are signing. People are signing childcare deals. People are trying to get uh, Afghani interpreters back into Canada. 
So I'm, I'm, you know, this well, may you think, after, Scott, he's on to this. Can't, I agree. I can't go after that, Scott, so you have to go. <laughs> well, my hey you are the people who are not putting money in my mailbox. Uh, <laughs> made an immediate and impressive change. Uh, my hey you is to Doug Ford. And uh, this will not be a hey you in that in that vein. My hey you is to Doug Ford. Yes, yeah, you haven't had as much luck with Lecce. No, and I'm I'm and I'm yeah. I'm swirling him too. But it's really directed at Ford. Yesterday he says that he will be tabling a back to school plan, and that the kids are going back to school. He previously promised it by the end of July. We're pretty much there. I mean, there's a million important decisions. Have there ever been any retrofittings of schools in terms of HVAC? What are the protocols going to be? Vaccinating teachers and custodial staff or not what is going to happen in terms of online learning uh, there's about a billion freaking decisions and he says yesterday look if i have to drive the school bus myself them kids are going back to school this provokes us to remember in february talking about vaccines he says my god if i've got to fill the pickup up and drive to kalamazoo well i've done it a hundred times and i'll do it fuck off okay just fuck off with this like i don't know if you have a fetish about being behind the steering wheel but you're the guy that makes policies you're the guy that makes decisions so quit trying to tell me that you have enthusiastic intent on these things just do it okay man you can make these decisions then you can be accountable for them then when people don't like them you don't get to stand around and go golly i i'm i'm upset too this whole bullshit populist thing of oh, i'm gonna get in my truck and go do it right now i don't want you driving the school bus Okay? I really, really don't want you driving the school bus. So, like, so stop that. What I do want you to do is go back in time four weeks and have tabled a plan then. I want you to stop pissing with the teachers union because that's what I think is behind all this delay. You don't ever want to do anything that might benefit or strengthen teachers because you don't want the unions to be strengthened. And we end up in this situation where teachers and students are stranded. Don't get behind the wheel of the school bus. Just do your fucking job. Especially the afternoon shift, I would suggest. Um, my hey you goes out to Justin Trudeau, um, and that would be uh, Canada needs a national certificate of vaccination. Oh my God, David, uh, you took my hey you. <laughs> don't ah. do the provinces. Don't wait for the provinces. You, we can do it together, Jenny. Jenny, I'm opening up my arms. We can do it together. It's our joint hey you national certificate of vaccination, and if it takes you till December to do that. That's the first argument why you shouldn't be reelected. How the fuck can it possibly take till December to get a national certificate of vaccination? Let's get this going so that businesses and services can start to do what they need to do to ensure the safety and comfort of their customers and people. No, I agree with you. I actually think this has to be a federal. This is this 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 is Trudeau has has basically put all major non financial decisions in onto the uh, uh, into the provinces, lockdowns and and what have you. And he's trying to do this with vaccine passports. But I think as we're seeing European countries uh, start putting their own uh, passports in, it has to be there has to be some form of decision federally. I know that there is. I have. I have friends that are not that that do not agree with my uh, position on 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 this. But if the world can, if we can ensure that there are not lockdowns, if kids can go to school, uh, if I can go back traveling, uh, which I which I miss, I happily have no problem pulling out my my because I was vaccinated in the U.S. My CDC CDC card and and having a proof of vaccination. So I agree. I agree with you, David. Me too. It's Absolutely. Thank you, Jenny. That that's very validating. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Thank you. 
I think we may have went a little long this week, and it was just because it was fun. So thank you, the two of you. And by God, I can feel it. We're going to be together soon. I can feel it, the three of us, in the Orange Lounge in a few weeks. I can feel it. All right. You, Until you then, enjoy Jenny Lindsay, and I, Jenny. Jenny and I are going to have you over to the new place soon, David. <laughs> 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 thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you. Tell us our presenting sponsor and CN. Thank you to the Air Quotes Media team for their support. Thank you to everybody who's been so supportive of the podcast on social media. Really, really appreciate that. And we will see you all next week. And by the way, we've got huge plans for the election that we will be unveiling to you over time. But the hurly burly is going to be a big part of your life in the election, whether you like it or not. <laughs> see you later. <laughs>